if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, the beauty of the gospel is that God has saved us. He's freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. He's put us in Christ, who's now our life. So we've got to together, surrender our lives, and say, our lives are yours, and we're your servants. It's not a radical version of Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We don't call the shots. He calls the shots. The Radical Together Podcast, with teaching from David Platt. And welcome back to another episode of the Radical Together Podcast. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can get those on iTunes or online at Radical.net. Now today, David is teaching from Acts 17 and his message entitled, Countering Culture. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to find Acts chapter 17. What I want to do in this podcast is take a pause from where we were the last few podcasts talking about personal prayer and Bible study. And I want to come back to some related issues, in particular fasting, and share some of the some of the overflow of some of the things the Lord's been teaching me recently along those lines. But I want to take a pause because I've, I've received a lot of questions recently about a, a book that I wrote called Counterculture. And I want to take just a bit of time to address those questions in light of God's Word. Actually, this is the topic for an upcoming Secret Church, which I would uh, encourage you to be a part of. Some of you may not know what Secret Church is, but in short, uh, this is something we do once a year that was born out of some time with underground house churches overseas where people, when they come together, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, gather as the church in secret late at night at the risk of their lives. And once they get together, they spend concentrated time in the Word. It was just 12 hours a day. And so I came back from some of that time and some of the uh, guys in the church that uh, I was pastoring, we were sitting around talking about that. And they said, why can't we do that here? Why can't we just spend that kind of concentrated time together in the Word? So we said, all right, let's try it on a Friday night. We'll do six hours. We'll just go from six to midnight and gather together whoever wants just for intensive time in the Word. And then we'll pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. And so we did that. And that was years ago. And so I think this is the 15th secret church we've done. And, uh, and we're kind of outgrew where we were. And so we now simulcast it. So uh, most people will we'll usually have 50, 60,000 people that'll gather together. And uh, many people gather together in their churches. Uh, most gather together in homes where they just simulcast in. So it's, it's six to midnight, it's Friday, April 24th. Um, so it'll be simulcast, but the topic that night is actually Christ culture and a call to action. So what we'll do is we'll spend intensive time praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, which I'm really excited about the prayer emphasis. We're going to be praying for the church in Vietnam in particular. And, uh, but then our time in the word is going to be totally devoted to looking at God's word to see how does Christ compel us to live in the middle of the culture around us? So that's the topic, Christ, culture, and a call to action. And all of this, that topic for Secret Church, this this book called Counterculture that I wrote, was prompted by just a deep personal pastoral burden in my heart when I look at the culture around us, and specifically in the church, at the church in the middle of that culture. We live in momentous days uh, I don't know if we realize just the rapid shift in moral landscape that is taking place around us and a culture that is increasingly becoming more and more resistant to Christ and the church. So I wrote this counterculture book just out of a deep 
personal pastoral burden to encourage and equip the church to apply the gospel consistently to this rapidly shifting moral landscape that we we live in. And I mentioned in the beginning of that book that on one hand, I'm encouraged among evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians, and particularly among younger evangelicals, I perceive zealous opposition to injustice regarding the poor, the orphan, the enslaved. I'm so grateful for the increased awareness of those issues. And I'm eager to see the power of the gospel in the lives of Christians fueling long-term commitments to address those issues. At the same time, I am concerned by a lack of zeal among evangelicals, and again, particularly among younger evangelicals, on social issues that are just as, if not in some ways, more important, like abortion and so-called same-sex marriage. On other issues, we're, we're pretty passionate. On these issues, we're strangely passive. And with so many of these issues so rapidly shifting in our culture, I'm just I'm reminded of the words of Elizabeth Rundle Charles, who was commenting on Martin Luther's confrontation of key issues in his day, saying, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, then I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christianity, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proven. And to be steady on all the battlefronts besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. So if we're going to follow Christ in our culture, we must engage the battles that are being fought. And we're flinching on a multiplicity of battlefronts when it comes to social issues and our culture. And we just don't have the option of sitting back and staying silent on any of them. Not if we believe the gospel. Because the same gospel that compels us to combat poverty compels us to defend marriage. And the same gospel that compels us to war against sex trafficking compels us to address sexual immorality in all of its forms. So my aim, not just in the book, but even right now in this podcast, is to call us as the church to contrite compassionate, courageous standing on the front lines of our culture when it comes to all these pressing issues with the gospel. So what I want to do, more importantly than even diving into each of those issues, and that's the point of the book, but but here to hit at the why. So why must we counter culture when it comes to these issues? Why can't we just sit back and stay silent and do nothing? Why do we need to apply the gospel and proclaim the gospel when it comes to all of these issues? And and this is where I want to use a quote from J.C. Ryle to answer that question. So J.C. Ryle, pastor in the 1800s, and amidst of volumes of sermons, he preached books, materials, he wrote, he, he was writing on the topic of zeal at one point, and this is what he said. He said, a zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It's not enough to say that he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. Ra went on to say, and that one thing thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he's rich or whether he's poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he's thought wise or whether he's thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame. For all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. 
He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. If he is consumed in the very burning, he cares not for it. He is content. He feels that like a lamp, he's made to burn. And if consumed in burning, he has but done the work for which God appointed him. And the reason I want to start with that quote is because that, over and above anything, everything else, that is why we must address the most pressing social issues of our day with the gospel. We must do so because we're zealous for the glory of our God. And this kind of zeal for one thing must mark our lives and our churches. And in order to follow Christ in whatever culture we live in, there must be zeal. So nominal Christianity won't do it. Casual, comfortable, cultural Christianity won't cut it. That version of Christianity that that sees Christ as a means to a comfortable Christian spin on the American dream won't be able to stand during these days. These, These days in our culture require authentic zeal, real passion for God, deep steadfastness in prayer, rock-solid confidence in His Word, and a willingness to obey it and speak it, to proclaim it, no matter what it costs. And so what I want to do, why I've got us in Acts 17, is I want to, based on this text, just springing from this text, offer two prayers that I have for for my own life, for my own family, for the church that I'm a part of, and for the broader church and our culture. For that matter, for the church in any culture. Uh, just spring from this story of Paul and the Areopagus in Acts 17. So let me give you the, the first prayer that I'm praying for the church and our culture, and then we'll dive into the text. So first prayer is this. God, make us zealous for your glory. God, make us zealous for your glory. You look at Acts chapter 17, verse 16. The Bible says, now Paul was waiting for them at Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So let me pause there, give you a little background on Athens. Athens was the cultural, philosophical center of Rome, a city of beauty, brilliance, the kind of city that would lead most people to walk around and just marvel at all the history and all the sights. But Paul was not known for being a tourist. He was incensed. He, he looked around and he saw idols, gods everywhere. The city was filled with them. People say Athens contained literally thousands upon thousands of idols. One historian said it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. And Paul, it says here in verse 16, was provoked. His spirit was provoked within him. Now, what does that mean? And the language is, is literally, he was, he was stirred with holy anger. And so I read that, and I'm, my, my question is, why? Why was he stirred with holy anger? And I think the answer is clear. Paul's zeal for the glory of God stirred him like this. I think about Isaiah 42, verse 8, where God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. And when you believe that, when you believe that God is the Lord and he doesn't give his glory to another, he doesn't give his praise to idols, when you believe that he deserves, God deserves all praise and all glory, then when you see idols everywhere, when you see God not being glorified, then something deep rises up in you and you can't stay silent. 
Henry Martin, a missionary to India, this country filled with idols, once said, I cannot endure existence if Jesus is not glorified. It is hell to me if he is always dishonored. And that's Paul. He can't stay silent. So he's driven into the synagogue, into the streets, and eventually up to Mars Hill around the high philosophers of Rome. Verse 17 says, So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Verse 18 says, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, so Paul is brought before the Areopagus. Before we read what Paul said to them, just pause and, and think about this holy anger in Paul and asked whether or not it resides in us. So we don't live in Athens. You and I don't live in Athens, but we are surrounded by idols in our culture. Idols of money and sex and power and position, possessions and people. And this is so important to realize because idolatry is at the root issue of all the social issues around us. You think about it. Why do we ignore the poor? Why Why is there such poverty? Why do we ignore the poor? Because we idolize wealth and possessions and luxuries and comfort in this world. We put ourselves before others. Why do we take an issue like abortion? Why do we abort babies? Why do we disregard orphans and widows is it not because of our idolization of convenience? You think about debates in our culture over homosexuality or so-called same-sex marriage. Are these debates not ultimately about the idolization of sex when we want it and how we want it with whoever we want it? When we recognize that idolatry lies at the root of all these issues, we realize that the reason then we must address these issues in our culture is because we're zealous for the glory of God. God is not being glorified. Wealth is being glorified. Comfort, security, convenience, sex. Ultimately, we are being glorified instead of God being glorified. So the question is, is your heart provoked by this? Are our hearts provoked? Are our affections marked by a, a holy anger, discontentment that God is not being glorified, that leads us to a holy zeal because we want to see God glorified? This is what drives us to go into our culture, any culture. Even those who are, these are not just American issues. These are issues all around the world. And so people are listening to this in different cultures around the world. This is what drives us to go into any culture with the gospel because we believe God is glorious and we want his name held high. Remember, this is what we talked about. This is how we pray, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Cause your name to be made known as holy in my life, in my family, in the church, and cause your name to be made holy in the culture around me. This is what drives our praying on a daily basis, our living on a daily basis. But here's the deal. If we sit back and stay silent on this issues, these issues, if we shrink back from speaking God's word with God's love, 
It's as if we have no desire for God's glory. It's as if we're content for God to not be glorified in the culture around us. And so we sit passively by. No, God made that not be so. You think about it. We work for social justice in the world. Why? Why? Because we want God to be exalted as the judge of the world. It's driven by the glory of God. We show God's mercy and ministry in the world. Why? Because we want God to be exalted as the merciful Savior of the world. It's zeal for the glory of God that drives our lives in the culture. Which is, which is why when Paul gets a chance to speak, he is absolutely God-centered. He exalts God so clearly. So traditionally, this has been called a sermon by Paul the preacher. But I think it's, it's better to see what we read here in Acts 17 more as a, as a Christian simply getting a chance to explain his beliefs. Nobody knew Paul in Athens. They didn't see him as this great apostle and missionary of the Christian church. He was just a, a babbler to them, a seed picker. They simply wanted to hear what he had to say. So he would be just like you or me, any one of us being questioned by a friend or an acquaintance who's curious about Christianity. You think about the multiplicity of opportunities that we have on a daily, weekly basis just to explain our beliefs. And this is what Paul's doing. And listen to how his focus from the very start, very beginning, is on exalting God. Listen to this, verse 22 of Acts 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul starts pointing out how God is the creator of the universe. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So Paul says, you think you can fashion a God? The reality is God has fashioned you. And not just you, but everything around you. God's the creator of the universe. He's the sustainer of life. Listen to verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul says, God is the only reason. The one true God is the only reason you or anyone else, anything else has breath and life. We depend on God. God does not depend on us. He's the sustainer of everything. He's the ruler of the nations. Listen to verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, God is the maker, the ruler of all ethnic groups, all peoples. The same word uh, that's used here is used by Jesus in the Great Commission to talk about making disciples of all nations. God's the one who made all the nations. So God makes and he rules all the nations, all the peoples. And he's the savior of the needy. Verse 27, he's determined the periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. The beauty of this picture God is, or Paul is painting of God is that he has come to us, that 
He can be found by us. That the creator of the universe, the sustainer of life, the ruler of the nations is also the savior of the needy. Keep going in verse 28. It says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So he's talking about how God is the father of each of us. We're his offspring. But not just the father of each of us. He's the king over all of us. He says in the very next verse, verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The whole picture here is not of a God who we have authority over, but a God who has authority over us. We don't, we don't make him. He makes us. We don't rule him. He rules us. We, he doesn't need us. We need him. And he, this is where Paul just kind of puts a, a climactic note on this. He says, God is the judge of all the world. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, Paul says, you're going to stand before this God and you're going to be judged through his resurrected son, Jesus Christ. Now, now that right there put the people in the Areopagus over the edge. In the same way that these truths would put most people in our culture over the edge. Listen to what happened. Verse 32 says, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So in all of this, just see it. It was zeal for the glory of God that propelled Paul to the highest philosophers of the day to boldly to say, boldly say to them, God deserves your praise. And so this is my prayer for my life, my family, church, and our culture, you and whatever culture you live in, that when we look out, the culture around us, and we see a plethora of social issues, poverty, abortion, orphans and widows and sex slavery and so-called same-sex marriage and sexual immorality, racism, immigration, religious liberty issues, ultimately the unreached in the world, that we would view every single one of these issues with zeal for God's glory. And this is where countering culture must start. When we see poverty in the world, we are provoked to act. Why? Because we long for God to be praised as the defender of the poor and the helper of the weak. When we see abortions, we're provoked to act. Why? Because we long for God to be glorified as the author of life who creates men and women beautifully in his image. When we see the orphan crisis in the world, we're provoked to act. Why? Because we long for God to be known as the father to the fatherless. When we see millions of girls being trafficked for sex around the world, we're provoked to act. Why? Because we long for God's justice to be known among those traffickers. And we long for God's mercy to be experienced by those they're trafficking. When we see the acceptance of homosexuality, the redefinition of marriage, we're provoked to act. Why? Because we long for God to be acknowledged as the creator of men, 
women, sexuality, marriage, and we don't have the prerogative to redefine what he has designed. When we see racism, we're provoked to act. Why? Because God deserves the exact same praise from all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, all languages. You see it. God, make us zealous for your glory. God, may this anthem rise from our lips and our lives across the the culture in which we live, to the ends of the earth, that you're the creator, that you're the sustainer, that you're the ruler, you're the savior, you're the father, you're the king, you're the judge of the world, and you deserve the praise of people everywhere. David will be back to finish his message in just a moment, but we'd like to take this opportunity and invite you to be a part of an event we call Secret Church. Now, Secret Church is an evening of intense Bible study and prayer for the persecuted church based on time David spent teaching in underground house churches in Asia. This year, David will be teaching on a topic entitled Christ, Culture, and a Call to Action. Now, in David's newest book, Counterculture, he addresses some of the most pressing issues of our day like poverty, same-sex marriage, racism, abortion, and pornography. And at Secret Church, we're going to dive deeper into the Word of God concerning these issues in our culture. David will help us answer the question, how does God's word affect how we live and respond as individuals and as the church? We want to invite you to join tens of thousands of other believers from around the world for Secret Church on Friday, April 24th. To find out more or to register for the Secret Church simulcast, visit secretchurch.org. Here's David with the rest of today's message. So God, make us zealous for your glory. And then second prayer that I have from my own life and the church in our culture and followers of Christ in any culture. God, make us zealous for your glory. And God, make us passionate for people's salvation. God, make us passionate for people's salvation. So notice that Paul's zeal for God's glory, this right, righteous anger, led to compassion for people's souls. Indeed, a great cost, Paul found himself telling these people about the one true God and how he'd come to redeem them. Verse 17, which we read, said, He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So notice that Paul's zeal for God's glory made him passionate to reason with them about how God had had made a way for their redemption. He wanted people to know God. He wanted people to know not just God's glory, but His grace and His mercy. This is what Paul was focused on. He didn't say a word about the great architecture or intellect or art or anything like that in Athens. Paul couldn't care less about all the stuff that everybody else who visited Athens cared about. What he cared about was the spiritual deadness in people's hearts that was causing them to worship idols. He saw their lostness, the losses of men, women, boys, and girls, and he had to say something. He couldn't stay silent. He wanted them to know who God is and how God loves them. So may the same be true of us in culture, in cultures around the world filled with idolatry. May we be provoked to zeal for God's glory that leads for, to a compassion for people around us to know God's grace. May that passion drive us to tell them who God is and how much God loves them, which is the gospel. So with a passion for people's salvation, let's speak the gospel clearly. This is, this is how we respond to social issues around us, with the gospel, with speaking the gospel. Think about it. When it comes to helping the poor, 
in a 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 kind of way. Helping the poor gives us the opportunity to communicate how Christ, though he was rich, became poor so that others might become rich. It's gospel-driven care for those in poverty. Caring for orphans in a Galatians 4, Romans 8 kind of, kind of way provides us with opportunities to tell people about how God pursues us as his children. He adopts us into his family through Christ. When we're talking about marriage in our culture, this is an opportunity to share in an Ephesians 5 kind of way how God has designed the relationship of a husband and a wife to illustrate Christ's sacrificial love for his people on a cross. When we're working against racism in a culture, it provides us the opportunity to share in a Revelation 5 and 7 kind of way how Christ has come to redeem a people from among all peoples to belong to him. So the, the, the whole goal in thinking about countering culture is to think through how addressing these issues with zeal for God's glory gives us an opportunity to share God's gospel in order to lead people to Christ. So we have opportunities like this all around us in our culture. So may we not sit back paralyzed in silence next time somebody at our workplace brings up the issue of homosexuality or so-called same-sex marriage. But to realize this is an opportunity to share the gospel. To, to talk about all those threads of the gospel that we looked at when it came to Bible study, the character of God, to, to talk about who God is, which is exactly what Paul's doing all throughout Acts chapter 17 here. To talk about the sinfulness of man, about the fact that we're each created by God, but all corrupted by sin. When you look at Acts chapter 17, verse uh, 27, Paul talks about how people are separated from God, even ignorant. He uses the word in verse 30, lacking knowledge and needing to repent. And so one of the core truths of the gospel, all of us have turned aside from God to ourselves. And this is the reason for injustice in the world, right? Man's selfish sinfulness is the heart of why people are impoverished, why babies are aborted, why girls are trafficked for sex, why racial prejudice reigns and on and on and on. We live in a world of suffering. Why? Because we live in a world full of sin, Which points to that third thread of the gospel, our need for Christ and how Jesus alone is able to remove our sin, reconcile us to God. When Paul says in verse 31 that God will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's quite a statement. It's no wonder that those listening responded like they did. Paul just claimed that all the world will be judged by Jesus who died and then came back to life. So then he calls them to that fourth thread of the gospel, the necessity of faith. The way to be reconciled to God, Paul says, is through faith in Jesus. Paul calls the people at Mars Hill to repent, to turn from their ways, to turn from the worship of all these gods and to trust in Jesus alone as God. Because eternity is dependent on these things. So you see these core threads of the gospel just woven through what Paul was saying. And Paul spoke it clearly. In Athenian culture, and his example beckons us to speak it clearly clearly in American culture and in any culture we live in, not to shrink back. Knowing, and let's be honest, knowing that this gospel is about as popular today as it was in Athens 2,000 years ago. Remember verse 32, it says, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And isn't this why so many of us, in a sense, all of us, can be hesitant to speak this gospel? Because, let's be honest, it elicits mockery in our culture or any culture in the world to tell people there's one God, that they've rebelled against him, 
and are separated from him, that their only hope for reconciliation to him is faith and the death of a Jewish man 2,000 years ago who's now risen from the dead? And if they believe in him, they'll receive eternal life. But if they reject him, they'll go to eternal damnation. That's a tough sell in many cultures, isn't it? And so we're prone to sit back in silence. And we often say nothing about this gospel. And I think this is the case because deep down inside, well, I wonder sometimes if we actually believe this gospel is true. Could it be that most Christians don't speak the gospel because maybe many Christians don't believe the gospel? Now that may sound harsh to some, but just think about it. If we really believe this, then how can we not speak it? If you really believe that people around us, if we really believe that people around us are going to hell, to eternal damnation without Christ, then how much do we have to hate those people not to tell them how they can be saved from that? I mean, any inkling of love or concern for people will drive us to say something, won't it? But most of us, and let's just be honest, most of us are living like, well, Jesus has saved me, Jesus' teachings work for me and my family, but who am I to tell my neighbor or my coworker what he or she should believe? Who am I to go and tell other people and other nations that their beliefs are wrong and my beliefs are right? And even more, who am I to tell anyone that if they don't believe what I believe, they'll spend eternity damned in hell? And, and hear this. Now, I can, I can totally identify with this train of thought. I think about standing. I remember one day in particular, just standing in a sea of people in northern India. Uh, if you've never been to India, just think people. Lots and lots and lots of people. Well over a billion of them, to be precise. Over 160 million of whom live in northern India. So just crowded streets, urban slums, surrounded by seemingly endless villages that span the countryside. Economic disparity running rampant. More people living below the poverty line in India than the entire population of the United States altogether. And some people say that in northern India, approximately 0.5% of the people are evangelical Christians. Um, in other words, 99.5% of the people in northern India have not believed in Christ for salvation. Now, obviously, no one knows that kind of statistic for certain. And I want to be cautious in putting it out there. But just assume that statistic for a moment for the sake of illustration, which even if the statistic is off, it's likely not far off, up or down. But assuming this, I look around me one day in just a crowded sea of people and I think to myself, who am I to travel all the way over here to tell these people that what they need to believe? Who am I to tell them that all their gods are false, whether they're Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, Sikh, or any other gods, because Jesus is the only true God? Who am I to tell 99.5% of Northern India, 597 million people who surround me at that moment, that if they do not turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, every single one of them is going to spend eternity in hell? And that feels extremely arrogant entirely unloving, uncomfortably brash to claim that 597 million people, Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, Sikhs around me at that moment would go to hell if they don't confess with their mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. And here's the deal. That kind of claim would be arrogant. It would be unloving. It would be brash unless it's true. 
Isn't this what Paul himself said? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christians are to be pitied. And the worst thing we can do is persuade other people to base their lives on a lie. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then it makes no sense. It's outright foolishness to go around the world telling people that they either need to follow Jesus or face hell. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, if Jesus alone has paid the price for man's sin, if Jesus alone has conquered sin and death in the grave, then going into your culture and other cultures around the world telling about people about Jesus is the only thing that makes sense. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then it's the height of arrogance to sit quietly by in northern India while 597 million Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, and Sikhs go to hell. And And not just there, but here in any culture. It's the epitome of hate to not give our lives spreading this good news among every person we know, among every people group on the planet. So we're compelled, much like Paul, we're compelled to proclaim this gospel clearly, to trust this gospel, completely believing Romans 1.16, that that it has the power to save, that God will save. Yes, verse 32 says some mocked, but others said we want to hear more. And verse 34 said some of... Some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now, we probably wouldn't call that a revival here on the Areopagus that day, but let me tell you what we, what we know. In the century after this event, the church at Athens would give to the Christian movement men like Publius and Quadratus and Aristides and Athenagoras, many of whom would die martyrs' deaths and water the growth of the gospel with their blood. In the 4th century, the Christian schools in Athens produced great Christian thinkers like Basil and Gregory who helped the church flesh out its theology in, in those early days. And only time and eternity will tell of the unnamed disciples that ultimately stemmed from the conversion of a man named Dionysius and a woman named Damaris in Athens. And so I want to encourage you. Live with zeal for God's glory and live with compassion for people's salvation. When you look around and see the culture around you, a culture filled with all kinds of issues, poverty, slavery, abortion, sexual immorality, discussion of redefining marriage, the neglect of orphans, widows, racism, persecution, ultimately unreached people all around the world, I exhort you, see these issues in light of the gospel. And God, give us a zeal for your glory and a passion for people's salvation in such a way that it drives us to speak this gospel clearly as we trust this gospel completely in whatever culture God has placed us. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to you. And if you'd like more information on David's latest book, Counterculture, visit counterculturebook.com. Additional resources from David's ministry can be found at Radical.net. There you can find sermons, secret church resources, and more. And if you'd like to learn more about the International Mission Board, you can do that by visiting imb.org. As always, we're glad you tuned in. Join us next time for more teaching from David right here on the Radical Together podcast.